Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Giant Pod with me, Andy Rintmore. This week's guest is Dr. Susie Gage. She's a psychologist and epidemiologist. She's a senior lecturer at University of Liverpool. She is the host of the smash hit podcast, Say Why to Drugs, that is co-hosted by Scroobius Pip, that is also part of his Distraction Pieces Network. She's the author of the book, Say Why to Drugs. Uh, what do we talk about? Trigger warning, content warning, first of all, I guess. Uh, we talk about drugs, we talk about alcohol, we talk about mental health, we talk about addiction. Um, so please be warned going into this one that that is the topics that we are discussing. We talk about socioeconomics, we talk about politics surrounding drugs, we talk about very data-driven points, we talk about gateway drugs, we talk about uh, MDMA, we talk about many, many drugs uh, in their scientific forms. There's lots of myths dispelled, um, lots of facts, no fiction. Uh, I think you're going to really like this. I really enjoyed it. It was such a treat to sit down with someone so, so knowledgeable in their field and pick their brains for an hour, or just over an hour. It was a real privilege. I really, really enjoyed this, if you couldn't tell. So here it is, Susie Gage. Hi, it's me, Andy, again. Just want to remind you, if you want to help this show grow and you don't want to spend any money, there's some ways that we can do this free of charge. If you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, that really helps. If you leave a review on whatever you're listening to this on, that really helps. Like, subscribe, tell a friend. That's really important to tell a friend. If you want to follow us on social media, that also helps. The handle is at the giant pod. That's for Twitter and Instagram. That's enough from me. Back to the episode. Enjoy. Okay, cool. Yeah, just email that one through when um, when we're done with it. Um, but, um, how are you? Yeah, good. I'm quite tired today. This is my sixth Zoom of the day. Oh, really? <laughs> oh. Yeah. I managed to fit in some lunch, but I'm definitely flagging now. So I'm just trying to perk myself up a bit. Right. <laughs> Now, what do you use to perk yourself up? Because I've been listening, I've probably listened to, I'd say five or six hours worth of your podcast in the last two <laughs> days to prepare for this. Um, and there's quite a lot of chat about caffeine. Caffeine yeah. comes up. So what do you use to sort of perk yourself up? Do, are you against, you're not against these things or? No, no, I'm not against anything. I'm just um, interested in what we know about the evidence. But in terms of at the moment, so I'm eight and a half months pregnant right now. Uh, so yes. I've been avoiding caffeine during my pregnancy. The evidence around that's not great. I think a little bit of caffeine is absolutely fine, but I've just not been, I've, I've moved on to the decaf basically. Right. Uh, so at the moment, all I can really do is like a nice cold glass of water, basically, <laughs> which is uh, really hitting the spot. Yeah. And, um, oh, and some Gaviscon, which right. helps. <laughs> Does Gaviscon have caffeine in it? No, it's just because of pregnancy, you have constant heartburn. So. Oh, fun. <laughs> yeah. Sounds great. Yeah. yeah, so thanks for agreeing to be on the show. I've been, no love, I've been, I've been loving it, actually, the last couple of days. As I said, I've listened to about five or six hours of it. And, um, and I do love how it sort of, um, there's no judgment surrounded with the, it's just the science. 
Um, and I think that's that's really cool. I'm a musician myself, and there's always there's always jokes going around about like you know, oh, to write this to write this EP, we're gonna have to go and do acid in the desert or something. Is it, we're always like joking about that one. Obviously, we haven't done it, but um, what what do you what, what do you think uh, that sort of stuff does for musicians? I was just listening to one when you came on the Zoom. I had to I had to pause it, so I haven't finished it. But it's you with a panel of people, and you're actually just digging into musicians and sort of psychedelia and things like that. Yeah, that I really loved that episode. We did it as part of a um, music festival called Smithdown Road Festival that happens just on the road I live on, on in in Liverpool. And yeah, so we had some musicians and some scientists on the panel as well and a music journalist. So it was a really interesting group of people. And we talked a bit about this link between drugs and creativity that lots of people say, oh yeah, you know, the drugs really help with the creativity. But actually it's really difficult to know kind of in what direction that relationship is because is it that drugs make you more creative like psychedelics make you more creative or whatever cannabis um or is it that people who are more creative or in have a certain personality type are also more likely to try these drugs because they've got a curious mind you know right. so they want to know what what um a psychedelic experience is like because that appeals to their particular personality type so actually saying that the drugs help the creativity I'm not so I'm not convinced myself I think and there's lots of things there's lots of effects of drugs that can really hinder creativity as well yeah um, and recently I was on I was on a podcast called your own personal Beatles and we were talking about um, the Beatles relationships with drugs as well and and talking about sort of John Lennon and saying well you know, maybe acid helps, but it also helps to be John Lennon if you're going to write <laughs> these amazing songs, you know. Yeah. I think that's kind of the important bit is the John Lennon bit rather than the the psychedelics or whatever else. Yeah, yeah for sure. I definitely feel like there's probably, if you're a musician, you're probably a disposition, a predisposition to be more open anyway. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a lot to do with it. And, and of course, if you've had 50 years of Rolling Stone magazine with Jimi Hendrix and the Grateful Dead and Janis Joplin and the Beatles and Dylan and everyone goes, and then we tried LSD and then it all changed. And then the colours come in, the sitars come through and and everything gets way more sort of, well, on the surface, it seems more creative, but maybe it's, maybe it's not any more creative, just different. Well, also, there's such an expectation effect as well. Like if you've been told enough times that that's what's going to happen, then you're kind of predisposed to feel like that. And we definitely see that with substances like psychedelics, that if people have very strong preconceptions of what their experience is going to be like, it's going to be more likely to be like what they're expecting it to be like. Right. If that makes sense. Like the type of the mood that we're in and the environment that we're in when we take a substance, it's called set and setting. It has such a huge impact on the type of intoxication experience you have for any drug. I mean, that's true of alcohol as well. So people listening to this um, may not have tried an illicit drug, but I'm going to guess that a lot of people who who listen to this will have had alcohol. And we Mm. all know that how you're feeling before you start drinking has a big impact on the on on your experience that evening when you go out for example like if you've had a bad day and you think oh I really need a drink it's going to help me feel better it might help you feel better and to begin with the first one or two but it might then end with you sort of crying in the loose at the end of the night or feeling (laughs) awful you know because you're 
how you're feeling is going to really impact on on the yeah. experience that you have. Yeah, I try not to. Uh, I try to only drink to celebrate or to um, enhance a good time. If I'm having a, a bad time, luckily I don't have too many bad times. I, I mean, I don't know. It's all subjective and how you and how the individual deals with what life throws at them. I, I guess as well. But I'm quite blessed that I'm, I'm very rarely in a, what I would call like a shit state or something you know what i mean but if i am so maybe if I, i've had a breakup or something you feel a bit heartbroken whatever a bit down on something the last thing i do is drink because i just don't feel i don't feel like that leads you to make any good decisions you're spending money you're wasting money on not a good time um and you're going to feel even worse the next day and you can run away from the reality maybe maybe probably not with alcohol very much unless you really go for it um but then when you wake up the next day you're in exactly the same place that you were 12 yeah. hours before i think it's really it's really easy to develop a negative relationship with alcohol if you start using it to try and help because as you say it's only a very short term fix the next day you're going to feel worse so maybe the next day will be more of a struggle so you'll need more alcohol at the end of the day and then the next day will be even more of a struggle so you'll need more and when you start to build that kind of a relationship with a substance that's what's associated with all the sort of or with with more um, risks in terms of both the heaviness of your use and also the impact that it might have on your longer term mental health as well. Yeah I just see it as a very sort of short term yeah, as you said, it's a short term. Yeah. But I don't even know if it's a fix. But it's all up to the individual, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, some people definitely sort of swear by it. And, and, and for things like social anxiety of sort of, if you're going to a party and you don't know anyone, it's so much easier to talk to people after you've had a drink than it is if you go completely stone cold sober, um, particularly if you're quite a shy or anxious person anyway. And I think lots and lots of people use alcohol in that way. Um, so we do kind of rely on it to some extent and maybe that's not a particularly healthy way to behave but it's something that an awful lot of us do yeah a social lubricant exactly think, they call it which is a great a great term uh so you would you consider yourself to be an expert now after the years of doing podcasts and research because it's i've got some notes here it says you're a psychologist and an epidemiologist which so I guess the psychology comes into the addiction realm, um, and uh, but you, you're not necessarily talking about addiction um, within your, uh, uh, say, whiter drugs. You're actually just talking about drugs as chemical compounds, I guess, aren't you? As the, the raw scientific. Yeah. So how how did you how did you come into this uh, this realm? So my, my day job, I guess, is that I work at the University of Liverpool. I'm a senior lecturer in the psychology department and I teach medical students and I also do my own research. And the research that I'm interested in is understanding the relationship between substance use and mental health. So it's actually less about addiction and it's more about substance use more broadly because the vast majority of people who use recreational drugs, be they legal or illegal, um, don't suffer from addiction, don't necessarily um, have a problematic relationship with that substance. They might use it every so often. Um, so I'm kind of interested in the spectrum of drug use, not just the, the sort of far end where people have developed problematic relationships with substances. But what we do see is that 
substance use is related to um, increased rates of poorer mental health. But what I'm interested in is trying to understand, well, what, what does that mean? Because that could mean a couple of things. It could mean that the substance causes an increased risk, but mm. it could also mean that people with poor mental health might be more likely to turn to a substance, maybe because it alleviates some of their symptoms or even just gives them a bit of an hour or two of sort of respite from feeling how they feel to get into a different mind state. You know, that right. might be helpful. Or it could be that something that happens earlier in life, like um, sort of, I don't know, the, the relationships you have when you're a child or during your adolescence, um, maybe if you experience difficulties as a child, difficult home environment, all sorts of different possible reasons, that maybe that influences both your likelihood to use substances and your risk of poor mental health. So actually the link you see between the two is just an artefact of this earlier thing that's happened to you. So my research is trying to kind of unpick all those, and it's incredibly complicated, really yeah. difficult sort of associations to unpick. So I'd say kind of I'm an expert on that, I guess. And then thinking about what we know about different recreational drugs, that's part, some of that is my research. So I do a lot of research around alcohol, cannabis, tobacco, but some of the other substances that I've uh, talked about in the podcast, that's been kind of me going and, and finding that stuff out sort of not so much as part of my day job, but as part of like this stuff that I've been doing alongside it, like writing science blogs and making the podcast and, and writing a book as well. How do you fit it all in? How do you, <laughs> do you have a, a time management strategy? Because I wear a few hats and I do find I have ADHD, ADHD and I do find that when I'm on the momentum path, it's easier. I just had to do a bit of isolating because I thought I'd, well, I'd been in touch with someone who had COVID or had a positive and I had to, I'm okay, I'm good, I've got a negative test. But I found that all my momentum like stopped. And I went, I've gone back into like bad habits of like sleeping in a bit and like maybe looking at my phone too much. And, and I'm really, I'm like really glad to be on this podcast actually, because I'm actually finally doing something, but it's, it, but it's before that I felt like time management was, was becoming really important with having to, to juggle all the responsibilities and be effective within all of them. So how do you do this uh, while being heavily pregnant as well yeah. well yeah it's definitely uh some sometimes is trickier than others but um when I started when I started the podcast and I also started science writing was when I was a PhD student so I was very much entirely in control of my own time um I tried to do a nine to five day working on my PhD, but you can be really flexible when you're a student. I'm sure people know what it's like. And there's a lot of work to do for a PhD, but you're very much by working by yourself quite a lot. So managing your own time. And as I then got further through my career, I, got, I did some sort of post PhD research and then I got a lectureship. And the more the sort of further along I got, the more difficult it was to try and keep the sort of the stuff that I was really enjoying doing, like the podcast and the science writing going alongside my job. But I was really lucky because there are there's there's funding you can apply for to do public engagement with science. And actually I was really lucky I was able to get a, a public engagement fellowship from the Wellcome Trust. And that's been really helpful over the past year and a half of actually having built into my day job this kind of thing 
now counts as part of my day job. So that's really, really helpful. Um, But yeah, otherwise it was like, I mean, I like being busy. I've played in lots of bands as well. So I've always managed kind of doing multiple things at once. Um, So I'd much rather be busy every evening than, than sitting at home on the sofa every evening. Having said that, right now, when I'm sort of a couple of weeks away from my due date of my pregnancy, uh, I'm loving my sofa. (laughs) So in a way, lockdown came at the right time for me personally, because I've definitely found myself a lot more tired than usual. And so I found lots of things about the lockdown really, really difficult. But one good thing about it is because I'm working at home, it means that when I do need to go and have a like a sit down or a lie down, I can do that for half an hour and then I can come back to another meeting or to finish off some work that I was doing or that kind of thing. So I'm trying to find yeah. find the silver linings where I can. <laughs> so what kind of music do you play? What do you do? Um, I play keyboards and I sing, although since I moved to Liverpool, I haven't been in a band since then. I had to leave the band that I was in in Bristol when I moved up here, which I was really sad about. Oh, But um, yeah, so I, I've been in all sorts of different kinds of bands. But the reason I moved to Bristol in the first place was because the rest of my band lived there. So... Yeah. What was your band called? Um, that band was called You and the Atom Bomb. And yeah, then I've been in a band called Gliss Gliss. I've been in a Goblin covers band. So Goblin are this 1970s Italian horror soundtrack band. So they did the soundtrack <laughs> to films like Dawn of the Dead and Suspiria and that kind of thing. So we covered a lot of their songs. That That was a really, really fun band to be in. And it also it really improved, improved my keyboard playing because they're parts are really complicated yeah um yeah i'm uh, i'm recording this from Froome, which isn't too far away from bristol i'm i'm sure you've probably been to Froome. Have, yes. <laughs> um but yeah we've uh we played bristol a whole bunch what's your favorite venue in bristol oh that's a good question at the moment i would say it's probably the exchange i used yes. to really love the croft um i used to really love uh the junction i don't know if you ever played the junction it was um I don't on, think so. On, um, oh God, Stokes Croft. Um, right. And it's a really tiny little dive bar and it all had um, tables with skeletons painted on it. And yeah, it was great. <laughs> it was great. Um, Mother's Ruin, I really love. Mother's loved. Ruin, yeah. yeah. Stag and Hounds. Oh yes, love the stag. My friends uh, got married at the Stag and Hounds. Really? Yeah. That's well, amazing. I had their reception there. Bristol's awesome. I love Bristol. Yeah, um, me too. That's, I, I that's... miss it a lot. Do you go back often? I guess you haven't when really. I can, listened. yeah. Not yeah. haven't been for a while, but yeah, because I've, st- I've still got lots of collaborators at the uni there as well, um, right. and also loads of friends through music. So yeah, I do try and go back when I can. And it was in Bristol that you first met uh, Scroobius Pip, right? Yes, yes, that's right. Um, well, I mean, it was on on Twitter where I first met met him, I guess. Okay, so how did that go down? Well, he so he was coming down to, um, I think, Real World Studios, um, which P- Peter Gabriel's studios just outside Bristol. I think they're in Box, are they? Yes, they are. He was doing some, I can't, I don't know exactly what, but he he tweeted saying, I'm going to be down in the Southwest. I'm looking for people to come on my podcast. So he makes this podcast, Distraction Pieces, where he interviews just people he thinks are interesting um, yeah. and has kind of long conversations with them. And he just asked for recommendations of people in the Southwest who he should get on his podcast. And someone suggested Huey from the Fun Loving Criminals. And someone <laughs> suggested me. 
Yeah. And Huey was busy. So. Hugh, Huey is a friend of mine, and uh, I know he's always busy because I'm trying to get him on the goddamn <laughs> pod. Um, yeah, Huey used to live in Froome. Yeah, we, um, we've we got some uh, some history. It's cool. But yeah, that's, that's a stroke of luck then, that you, he was busy. It was a massive stroke of luck. And it was lovely that someone, that someone suggested me to Pip and that he was then uh, interested enough to to follow it up. So he sent me a message. Um, he came around to my house and we, we recorded a conversation and I kind of told him about the research that I do and about being a woman in science. And we had a, quite a big conversation. And, but I also mentioned this idea that I had for a podcast about drugs. And he um, he really liked the idea. Partly I mentioned it to him because I'd had the idea for ages and I'd just done nothing with it. I'd found it really difficult to get started. So I thought if I mention this on his podcast and thousands of people listen to it, <laughs> then I have to do it. That's very smart. <laughs> and it turns out that was a good move. Very good move. Because, yeah, not only did um, did I have to do it, but also he said, he said, oh, that's a really great idea. You should call it Say Why to Drugs. I was like, oh, that's a really good name. Because <laughs> I've been really struggling <laughs> to think of a name. Yeah. But I guess like he does have a way with words. That's kind of his job. He does. So, yeah. yeah. My introduction to Scroobius Pip was uh, via the Dan Lassac versus Scroobius Pip album Angels, um, probably about 10 years ago now. And that is typically not a kind of music that I regularly listen to. But there was something about his words that were like, no, I this is fine. You know, I'll... I'll listen to this because uh, it was the only sort of some of the only electronic music in my audio diet at that time. Um, and it was just the words that kept bringing me back. It's just great. But um, yeah, no, I've not met Pip or, or had him on the show, but um, one day. So what, what did the um, what did being on the Distraction Pieces Network do for you? Because I know he gets something like four million listeners or something like that, isn't it? It's like he's a crazy listenership. Yeah, I think, yeah, he's he's he's. He's a popular, a popular boy, um, <laughs> but it's so it's fantastic being part of a network. And um, yeah, so the network was basically just he was just about to start it when we had our conversation. So he said, you should make this podcast and you can do it as part of the network if you want. And then because he also agreed to be on the podcast, too. So what I've been doing up to that point is interviewing researchers about their work and I wasn't a very good interviewer at that point. I'd never really done it before. I didn't really know what I was doing. And the conversations were just really dry. And it was no fault right. of the researchers. It was me not not asking them very good questions. Right. But because Pip said he would be on the podcast, he's like, you could be the expert and I'll be an interested but non-expert friend and we can just have a conversation. Yeah. And it's so much more engaging to listen to when when you can make a podcast in that way because if it was just me kind of reeling out the evidence about a particular drug, it would be it would be quite yeah. dull. It would be quite dry. But because he was able to talk about either his own experiences or if I said something that was too complicated, he'd be able to go, whoa, whoa, stop that. I don't know what you mean by that. And I could right. explain it. He basically asks the questions that the listeners are thinking, but he's able to do that right there so I can answer them on the podcast. And it just it just worked really, really well. So it immediately made it more engaging. And then obviously having him involved as someone who's got however many million Twitter followers and this big um, reach just meant that, it could like people who were interested could hear about it, which when you're starting out, you can make the best content in the world, but if people don't know it's out there, 
then it's really hard to get listeners. So just yeah. having that ability um, for people to find out about it was just was so it was absolutely invaluable. I feel very lucky. And it definitely took me a little bit by surprise just how how popular it was so quickly because it did end up in the top 10 of the iTunes chart when it was first released, which was was quite overwhelming <laughs> because I sort of thought it would be a bit of a slow burner and, right. and, um, and that it would kind of word of mouth or it would sort of trickle out. And the good thing about it is it's not really time sensitive. So people are still coming back to it. And the, the first episode, which was about cannabis, is still the most downloaded one so people are coming and listening to it and starting at the beginning right but we but we're over one and a quarter million listens now on say why to drugs so it's it's pretty amazing is that per episode or is that oh, in no, no, total? No. <laughs> no that's in total yeah but still it's really it's really gratifying to know that it is useful for people that's still incredible though that's amazing. Um, I, I was talking to my producer the other day because we tend to check the stats a bit. And we always say that it's a marathon, not a sprint. So it's, you know, like you said about the slow burner thing, you've obviously been very lucky to tap into Scroobius Pip's orbit, I guess, of, of podcast um, dominance. Uh, but yeah, but for many podcasts, it's going to be a marathon and not a sprint. And that, so that's, we're trying to get you know, as many interesting episodes, variety, get the back catalogue so people can really... Well, I, I like that when I when I listen to podcasts. I really like finding one and finding out it's got a big back catalogue and then being able to go back. Right. That's kind of how I listen to podcasts. I don't... I mean, it's very rare that you start at the beginning, is it? So... No, that's true, actually. I started at the beginning I, of you, but I, yeah, but yeah you, you do tend to... You jump in at your interest point and then backtrack, don't you? Exactly, yeah. So it's really nice to have, for, to have a wide back catalogue that people can dip into, definitely. And uh, uh, tell me about the book. Yeah, so the book kind of came out of the podcast. It's also called Say Why to Drugs, but I was able to go into a lot more detail about a lot more substances in the book. And it was so fun and interesting researching it as well, because one of the things that I never did in the podcast that I've been able to do in the book is look at the history of a lot of these substances. And it's amazing how many uh, started off as sort of as medications. Right. And in fact, it's amazing how many drugs that we think of as sort of recreational drugs, or I don't really like the term, but drugs of abuse are also medications like ketamine is on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines. It's an incredibly useful anaesthetic. But it's also a potentially quite dangerous um, recreational drug, which can lead to sort of bladder problems and all sorts of things. And I just found the kind of the history of cocaine is incredibly interesting mm. as well. And um, yeah, so so reading up about all these different substances and, and looking at them in a much broader way than I was able to do in the past was really amazing. Um Launching a book during a pandemic is less good, I've got to be honest. <laughs> All of my book events have been cancelled, as you might expect. But uh, yeah, um, writing it was really fun. <laughs> I did get to see it in a shop before we went into lockdown, so that was something. So you can add author to your list of titles now. Yeah. That feels <laughs> Published author, yeah. yeah, it's very good. I bet that feels good. Um, so what's the plan with the book? I know it's a, obviously going to be a commercial venture, but are there plans to get these into schools? Are they being added to, um, I, I guess there's some sort of national library association thing. I guess there's like a, like books that are made sure in every library. 
Is it going down yeah, that route? It's, it's definitely in lots of libraries that I know about at the moment. I'd love to get it into schools. I think that would be really amazing. And I've had quite a few parents and teachers get in touch with me to say that it's really useful. I know that quite there's a few universities who do um, addiction modules as part of their psychology degree. And a few of them have told me that they've added it to their reading list for the students. So that's really good. I know it's in it's in the University of Liverpool's library because a couple of students have tweeted going, I was the first person to get it out of the library, <laughs> which is really <laughs> exciting. So yeah, it's available sort of in all the usual bookshoppy places, but it would be, it's really, it's really good to know that it's it's being read by people who are finding it useful right yeah and do you think there'd be any parents that would be against the book going to school because it's so pragmatic isn't it about about drugs and and it's and it's not necessarily a finger pointy like say no to drugs kind of thing is it it's it's way more like here be informed make your own decision which i think to a lot of parents is going to scare the shit out of them i think to some parents and so i A couple of years ago now, I was invited to a school to give a talk. And the way that this school did it is that um, the person, and this was true of everyone, it wasn't just because of the topic, the person who they'd invited gave the talk to the parents the evening before and then gave the talk to the students the next day. And so I gave the talk that I was going to give to the students, to their parents. Right. And almost almost entirely really, really positive response because at no point am I saying taking drugs is a good idea. Like the the risks of substance use is very much front and centre in the book. Mm. But I'm not naive enough to say that um, we should try and aim for a drug-free world or tell people not to do something. The idea is people are going to experiment with drugs. So the best, the way to make them as safe as possible or as, as least harmful as possible is to give people as accurate information as we can, harm reduction information, how to use these substances in the least risky way. Yeah. So start off with really small doses in a, in a safe environment, don't mix substances with other substances, that kind of thing. That's the way to, without glamorising these substances and saying that they're amazing and that they'll make you feel incredible, but also not not ignoring the fact that people do take drugs because of the experience of taking drugs. That's why people do it. Most parents really got on board with that message, but there was a couple, or in fact, it might even only have been one, but someone came up to me afterwards and said, I really feel uncomfortable that you're saying that alcohol is is worse than MDMA. And I said, well, I'm not really saying it's worse than MDMA. I'm saying it's in our society at the moment, it's more harmful. And maybe that's because a lot more people use it. Right. But but, <laughs> but their point was, my son will then be able to sort of say, but you're using drugs, you're, you're having alcohol. And that was what this person really took to Cumbridge with, that I called alcohol a drug. Right. I was like, but, al- but alcohol is a drug. <laughs> it's a psychoactive substance in exactly the same way that all of these other drugs we're talking about are psychoactive substances if anything it impacts on more on a a wider range of neurotransmitters in the brain Mm. so it alcohol has a has a really wide ranging effect in our brain it could and we we can see this by the the sort of what alcohol intoxication is like it's kind of one minute we feel really alert and the next minute we might be falling asleep it impacts on our judgment it impacts on our ability to conduct sort of fine motor movement it impacts on our reaction time you know it's a pretty powerful drug 
And yet it's the drug that's kind of societally accepted. And so we t- we really minimise in our own heads, I think, some of the risks from alcohol, um, particularly compared to drugs that we think, well, these drugs are illegal, so they must be more risky or more harmful, when actually a lot of the risks and potential harms from illicit drugs come from the fact that they're illicit. So we have no control over the quality, the potency, the dose, even knowing what they are. If you if you get a white powder or a white tablet, it could be almost anything. Yeah. And so how do you know what it is you're taking? How do you know how strong it is? You're putting yourself at much greater risk from taking an illicit substance because of this lack of regulation. While with alcohol, even though even where we know how strong alcohol is, and it's written on the side of every bottle of alcohol, how the the alcohol content and how many doses are in there, or how many units, even though we know all this information, we still quite often misjudge how much alcohol we intend to have and drink more than we intend to and, and, and experience the negative effects of doing so. I'm sure we've all had hangovers that we weren't <laughs> expecting, that kind of thing. Or we've all gone out for one and then come home at three in the morning going, whoops. <laughs> so so this, this, this idea that alcohol is somehow more benign compared to other substances is a, is a myth that I'm really keen to, to dispel. Yeah. But, but yeah, I think, I think you're right that some parents do find that quite challenging but I think, well, in my experience of speaking to parents and young people, I think most would rather that their children had good quality information for them to to help them make yeah. informed decisions that doesn't kind of sugarcoat um, anything really or, or mislead. Because I remember when I was at school, it was very much just say no, as you say, mm. and was kind of presented that all drugs were the same. Right. All drugs are bad, and so all drugs are the same. And really, drugs have all sorts of different effects. And it becomes very... You lose the credibility if you say all drugs are the same, because as soon as someone or their friend has experienced one substance, mm. and quite often that would be cannabis to start with, and gone, but I, I'm not addicted to it. I don't feel like I need to have it every day. Um, it hasn't made me go mad, or it hasn't... It hasn't fundamentally altered me. It made me a bit giggly and a bit hungry and and maybe I was sick or, you know, whatever. But then I was fine the next day. And once you once you have that kind of drugs are bad message disproved, then it's much easier to say, well, maybe MDMA is fine, maybe cocaine is fine, maybe heroin is fine, because they were they lied about cannabis. So I think giving people more accurate information in terms of education is really, really important. And what you're coming up against there with that particular parent is science clashing with a deep ingrained culture. Yeah, we have such a weird relationship with alcohol, particularly in the UK. So I just saw on Twitter about Wales going into lockdown and apparently they're super... I mean, I don't know about the accuracy of this because this was a tweet, so it might be an urban legend. But this tweet said... Um, in terms of su- supermarkets only being allowed to sell essential items, wine has been deemed an essential item, underwear not an essential item. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that says a lot about our relationship with alcohol um, in this country. Yes, that's actually kind of, um, yeah, that's the social commentary there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. The other thing I was going to mention with with I, with the anxiety of this particular parent is that obviously they're aware that they have a, a teenage child 
who isn't fully developed yet and is going to make mistakes and is going to not think about things fully. And, and there's a fear there, isn't there? Because if you give someone all the information to make an informed choice, like they're an adult, like they're an autonomous being with their own, you know, free will, etc. That that I can understand how that would make some some parents anxious because especially if you've got a kid who's a bit of a, you know, a bit of a free spirit, a bit of a wild child, whatever. You're not always sure what they're up to, and you don't like the look of their mates or whatever. Do you know what I mean? And then suddenly they they get this information where it's like, oh well, I could do this as long as I only do half a pill. Or something like that. I mean, it's kind of kind of scary for parents, I think, because in a way, I feel like it takes away some of their parental control to be able to say, "Oh, it's all bad. It's the, the boogeyman and this and that." Yeah, I, I I completely take that point, and I should point out as well that I was I would never say to a group of of children a sort of this is the dose that is safe or anything oh, yeah. like that. Because I, for a start, I don't think that's true. I don't think there is a safe dose of things. And, and there Sorry, were perhaps risks. I put words in your mouth. Then. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. But I just, but yeah, I think it's a, it's an important point because people, that might be what people are thinking. And, the, and that's definitely not, not the case. I wouldn't do a talk like that. And I wouldn't sort of say, because no drugs are safe, but that's all, that's true of alcohol. That's true of tobacco. Obviously, I mean, alcohol and tobacco are two of the, particularly harmful drugs in terms of risk to health in the UK population and globally as well. And maybe that's partly because they're used by so many people, but also they are particularly damaging drugs as well. But But no drugs are safe and no drugs are without harm. But when I do these talks, I talk about what we know about the harms, but 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 also saying where we don't know. So things like the link between cannabis and psychosis, for example, that's what I did my PhD exploring. And what I quickly realised is the link is definitely there. There's, they're very strongly associated, or not even actually very strongly associated, but there is an association between heavy cannabis use and an increased risk of psychosis or psychotic-like experiences. But to say that that is causal is much, much harder and also the extent to which everyone is at risk is unclear right. because cannabis use is fairly common. Psychosis is fairly rare. So it's definitely not the case that everyone who uses cannabis every day yeah. even is going to develop psychosis. However, it does look like if you have other risk factors as well, then cannabis could be one more thing that puts you at further risk of developing what is a very serious and debilitating mental health problem. Yeah. So it's really important to kind of get that nuance across, I think, because for most people who use cannabis, they're not going to have any problems with their mental health at all. But the people who do have problems could have really, really severe problems. So what we really need to do as researchers is better understand, well, who is particularly at risk and why? And I think the reason cannabis quite often gets most of the blame for psychosis is because other risk factors happen earlier in life or they're not quite as visible whereas you're like if you're going to develop psychosis you tend to develop it in late adolescence or early adulthood which is also just when you're likely to first use cannabis or start using cannabis right and so these two things happen like temporally very close together so maybe that is why that link is seen as particularly strong but also alcohol use predicts increased risk of psychosis as well. And again, most people who use alcohol won't develop psychosis, but some people will 
and potentially that's at least in part because of their alcohol use. Right. So it's it's really complicated and really nuanced. And so trying to sort of get that across, I think, is really important. But it's but it is important to talk about the limitations of what we know mm. as well, rather than just sort of saying as some kind of authority figure, if you do this, then this will happen to you. Because it probably won't, but it might. Yeah. And and yeah, it is it is difficult when you're when you're a teenager, I think, to make those decisions because you feel quite kind of invincible when you're a teenager <laughs> as well. And you're you're almost programmed to take risks. Yeah. Like that's an important part of learning and peer pressure. in teenage years. Yeah, and peer pressure as well. But one of the things I always say, particularly when talking about cannabis use, is we know that the risks are greater the younger that you are, partly because we know that your brain is still developing until you're about 25. And there are receptors in your brain um, called endocannabinoid receptors because our brains make a a type of cannabinoid. Right. They don't make, it's not THC, like it's not one you find in the cannabis plant, but that's why when you consume cannabis, it has a reaction in your brain because our brains, there are, there are certain receptors that are kind of the right shape for the cannabis molecules to fit in. Right. I mean, that's that's a oversimplification, right. but the, that's basically the gist of it. That is fascinating. Um, and those receptors are developing during adolescence. So if you flood your brain with extra cannabinoids, yeah. um, potentially that could alter the development of those receptors because if there's more of them there, then maybe the receptors will, um, the number of receptors will change to to represent or to reflect the increased number of these cannabinoid molecules in your brain. Right. Um, and so, and also then when you look at the outcomes, the risks are greater. If you start using cannabis at a younger age, that's more heavily associated with negative outcomes than if you start using it as an adult or later. So that's, that's a really important message that you can give to teenagers of say, you've got your whole lives ahead of you you don't need to try these things now. Wait until you finish this bit of brain development. And if you are going to then use, it's much less risky to do so after you're, say, 25. Right. I mean, there are still risks, but the risks um, go down and the risks are much higher right now at the age you were at. And so that's a kind of bit of information that you can give quite easily, I think. And so if your brain has a, a cannabinoid Am I saying that right? Cannabinoid shape receptor in it. Does that mean? I mean, it doesn't mean that you suppose it's it's there for cannabis. But what's it? What's it there for? If it's in the cannabinoid shape, what is its purpose there? So we our our bodies make what's called an endocannabinoid. It's called anandamide, I think. So our brains have lots of um, what are called neurotransmitters, and they are the chemicals that send messages between our brain cells. So our brain cells aren't directly connected to each other. There's a little gap between between each brain cell. And for a signal to fire across the gap, it gets to the end of one brain cell, triggers the release of a chemical, which then binds to these receptors on the other side, which then sends the signal further on. Again, a gross oversimplification, but that's kind of the gist of it. And so we have loads and loads of different neurotransmitters that are all involved in different processes. So you might have heard of dopamine, serotonin, noradrenaline, 
Um, there's there's all sorts of of neurotransmitters. There's one called GABA, which you may or may not have heard of. But I only know GABA is in the the sort of heavy industrial dark, German. Yeah. <laughs> uh, any links between the name and the? <laughs> I I mean I've wondered the same thing myself, <laughs> but I'm not sure. But I think like dopamine and serotonin in particular, lots of us will have heard of. Anandamide, which is a, this endocannabinoid, is just another one of these neurotransmitters that our brains or bodies make to pass these messages across. And in fact, that's how most recreational drugs work. Alcohol works like this too. Um, psychedelics work like this. They are either very similar in shape to pre-existing neurotransmitters or they interfere with the levels of neurotransmitters in some way. So some of them will bind to receptors uh, blocking other neurotransmitters. So MDMA, for example, is linked to serotonin and can alter the levels of serotonin. Lots of substances um, interact with dopamine because dopamine is, is a neurotransmitter that's sort of related to things like reward and experiencing pleasure. Um, opioids are very similar to our endorphins, so that's why opioids can can lead to feelings of pleasure that kind of thing so these molecules are very similar shapes to existing neurotransmitters in our brain and that's how they kind of they work so well how they have their effect in the brain right. so that's so it's not it's not that our brains have evolved to respond to yeah to cannabis it's that our bodies already do these processes and the, the molecules are just similar shapes we're sort of predisposed to them in a way yeah, yeah, or yeah, either it's a coincidence or, you know, some but for some reason these and that's kind of why they have their psychoactive effects because they have an effect in the brain because they're this particular shape and so they can alter the firing of our brain or the levels of our neurotransmitters. So earlier you mentioned that um other drug use and you said that you know potentially uh, or, or or um quite often it starts with cannabis do you th there is an old and i thought it was a cliche or or a, a mistruth but cannabis a gateway drug in your opinion or or not and i'm so i'm sorry you're so probably so bored of hearing that <laughs> no i think it's an important question i would say i don't think there's anything specific about cannabis itself biologically right that makes it a gateway drug and i think that most most people, not everyone, but most people when they try cannabis will already have tried alcohol and will probably already have tried tobacco, nicotine. Yeah. So if anything is the gateway drug, it's probably one of those two. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> um, but I think the reason cannabis quite often gets called a gateway drug is because it is seen as maybe a little bit less risky than some other substances. But it's also that step into kind of breaking the law. So it's it's the first substance that most people try where they're doing something illicit although having said that most people first try alcohol when they're underage and most people first try cigarettes when they're underage so that's not necessarily strictly true either they are sort of slightly sort of doing something illicit and i'm sort of saying illicit rather than illegal because the law is very complicated and it's yeah using a substance isn't necessarily illegal yeah. but um possession and selling and that kind of thing are so it's 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 sort of a bit complicated so I'm trying to kind of avoid yeah. <laughs> confusing terminology but I don't I don't think cannabis itself is a gateway drug and in fact when I was doing my PhD my friend was doing her PhD looking at the evidence for cannabis as a gateway drug and it's pretty it's pretty poor but maybe 
it's a sort of, it's likely to be the first illicit drug that you try. Maybe it's the first thing that you do that puts you in contact with someone who sells illicit drugs. And once you're in contact with someone who sells illicit drugs, then it's easier to then get other illicit drugs. So maybe that makes that more likely. So I don't think there's anything specific about cannabis itself that makes it a gateway drug in terms of biology, but in terms of sort of the social or environmental aspects, then it probably is the next one on on the path. But but lots of people try cannabis and never try any other illicit yeah. drugs. And there are plenty of people who try other dr- other illicit drugs who've never tried cannabis as well. So it's definitely not a sort of... And it's also down to that openness as well, like we talked about with the musicians being creative. I mean, if you're if you're trying, if you're trying, if you're if you're smoking cannabis, um, then it means you've already been open to one um, uh, one uh, experience, which is um, I don't want, I don't want to say mind altering, but you know psychoactive, as you said. Yeah. And so you're already, you know, you're already a few degrees open to this experience, aren't you? So exactly, exactly, yeah. So I'm the deputy mayor of Froome at the moment, and. I also work in a store, like a co-op, right, in the centre of of the town. And during lockdown, when when people were furloughed and staying at home, trying to do the lockdown, I noticed just how bad the town's drug and alcohol problems were. And I saw, I did see some people slide into them as well through a daily thing. What what the um. Not a thing, you know, like a, a decline, like you know, as you you see someone's pr- regression or progression into this uh, habit or or issue. Is there any data at the moment that's reflecting this? Because I, I noticed the way I saw it is that a lot of people went home, so that that there was loads of people who were suffering from addictions and um, were out and about because they had to steal and they had to try and make their their money to sort of score their drugs or whatever, just the same as they would in in a pre-lockdown situation. But because everyone had gone home, they were very conspicuous um, because of that. And it just it just hammered home just how how many people actually are suffering and in a, in a bad place. What what's the data looking like for this sort of period of our history? Yeah, I think this is something that a lot of people are really interested in. So we've done some research looking at alcohol use and there's been quite a few papers published. Um, Ours isn't out yet, but hopefully it will be soon around changing relationships with alcohol during the lockdown. And that seems to be people have gone one of two ways. People who didn't drink. I mean, this is, again, at a population level and there'll be lots of individual differences within that. But what's, what seems to be coming out in the data is that people who didn't drink as much have started drinking less and people who were drinking more have started drinking even more. So kind of this is, the divide has gone further. Right. But again, that's, that's only some quite preliminary data at the moment, but a few different data sets have shown this pattern, which is quite interesting. In terms of other drug use, I've worked on a paper with some colleagues, which isn't out yet, so I don't know how much I can talk about it, but it's under review at the moment, so we're hoping that it will get published soon. But we looked at online forums to people talking about their substance use and how lockdown and COVID have affected it. And we did some qualitative analyses to try and pull out different themes that were coming from the data. And we found some really interesting things like, for some people, the lack of structure was really 
really risky for them. So particularly people who've been furloughed. Lots of people who are sort of coming out the other side of drug dependence have a lot of coping strategies in place. And those might be things like meeting someone Mm. or going for a walk. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. When those kind of options are taken away from you, that can be really, really difficult. If you're not, if you, your support network can no longer access you and you can feel very isolated, then that could be a real trigger for slipping back into problematic behaviours or problematic patterns of behaviour. But conversely, people who are quite isolated and weren't able to attend, think, so things like AA and NA meetings have gone online in a lot of places. And while that's been very difficult for some people, it's actually made access easier for other people who find it difficult to physically get to meetings. So what our results really highlighted was the importance of these individual differences and why one size fits all kind of treatments for people with drug dependence or problematic drug use don't really work is because everyone has such different needs and different circumstances. And actually, we can probably do a lot more if we were able to be more responsive. I mean, the difficult thing at the moment is that all these services in the past few years have been really cut. The funding to them has been really cut. And so while we're here advising that people, um, that we should be doing more tailored and bespoke um, treatments, the money for that just isn't there at the moment. And it's something we really, really need as a society to look at is how to support people much better because at the moment we're pretty bad at supporting people. And it was a difficult situation to be in watching watching this happen in real time because I had to I had to I had to juggle two hats. I've had the local town councillor deputy mayor role and then I've got my my employee role. And it's you know, you and and I and I I've been stuttering a little bit and and not getting my words out quite right during this pod because I don't want I want to pick my words wisely and I don't want to sound like I'm judging anyone or damning anything and I definitely don't want to come across as ignorant but so I'm picking what I say wisely so I'm not misrepresenting anything but so you've got one one side of the coin is this guy's coming in every day and he's and he's robbing steaks and cheese to sell uh, door to door or whatever to or give to his dealer in lieu of of money, and you have to say, "Oi, you know, get out, don't come back." But at the same time, you don't hate this guy, and and you feel for him, and you kind of get that you get his plight. So I've got this weird thing of like, right, I've got this social responsibility with being a town councillor and a member of the community, but then I've also got this other thing where I'm sort of tethered to this sort of paycheck in this corporate not quite corporate where I am, but this, this entity. And it was a really hard thing to juggle. And it really was, a, it really troubled me. And I ended up writing a piece, um, a mayor's view for the local paper. And I tell you what, during such a time of sort of divided politics, um, when that piece came out about, you know, there is a dark side to this hip town that everyone's putting in the newspapers and the Guardian and whatnot is the, the coolest hole ever. Um, there is a dark side that people don't always talk about. And that was received almost overwhelmingly. Um, And I realized that this is an issue that unites both sides of the, uh, I guess not everything can be political, but um, this unites all all corners of society in in that, you know, there's a lot of people out there that really do care about 
the fabric of society and then not and not letting these people drift off in the fringes and, and suffer. Um, and it was really quite powerful. Um, I will send you, I'll email you the, the thing afterwards. But how, how, what would your advice be to someone like me who has to juggle these, these responsibilities, some social leadership, but also having to understand that there's, there's, a, there's a consequence to drug-related crime? I mean, first, I guess I should say that, that that's a little bit out of my kind of area of expertise. I'm very much about the sort of the science, the population level science rather than policy or the sort of criminal side of things as well. What I would say is I think what you've said there is incredibly powerful. And the thing that so we did a piece of research, well, a couple of pieces of research recently, myself and some colleagues at uh, Liverpool John Moores University, um, looking at stigma and the impact of stigma on people who use drugs and on perceptions of people who use drugs. And what we found was that when personal, humanising, true stories were presented alongside the evidence around um, sort of how people ended up in difficult circumstances, for example, or um, speaking to families who've lost loved ones, um, through substance use, when those stories were incorporated alongside evidence, people showed so much more sort of compassion and understanding and support for harm reduction measures around substance use. So one of the papers we published was looking at um, introduction of drug consumption rooms in Scotland, specifically for people who inject drugs um, and as a, as a kind of cleaner place for someone to use to inject a drug rather than having to do it um sort of clandestinely in a potentially sort of disgusting um conditions with with unsterile equipment so these consumption rooms are somewhere sort of clean and safe that someone can go um and they've they're used in all sorts of other countries and shown there's a lot of evidence for their efficacy uh but politically in this country or in Scotland and maybe more so in the UK as a whole, um, there's not very much political will to support them. I think partly because people feel there's a feeling that it's not a vote winner kind of thing. Um, but what we found was that in a representative sample of the Scottish population, just in general, the majority of people who were interviewed were broadly supportive and they became more supportive when we provided sort of evidence, but alongside humanising stories. So I think what you're saying about your article, it sounds like it really hit a nerve because it reminded people that we're talking about human lives here. We're talking about people who are really struggling and anything that we can do to kind of help um, can be really powerful. And I think that's where this kind of criminal side comes into it as well, because these people are suffering their health is suffering, their relationships are suffering. And on top of that, they, they, they're they at risk for sort of criminal factors as well. So I think if we can make substance use more of a health issue than a criminal issue, I think that takes one, one angle of this pressure off people who are really struggling. Do you think we'll, we're likely to see um, a, 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 a move in that direction under our current um, government? Honestly, I really don't know. Um, 
I know you're a scientist, <laughs> not a politician. Yeah, it's but it's no, it's a really interesting question, and it's something that I've spoken about a lot. So I've just recorded a podcast with an organisation called Transform that's going out next week, I think, and they've just written a paper about what a regulated stimulant market would look like. It came out this report came out earlier this week. They wrote one about cannabis a few years ago. And actually, now we are around the world seeing cannabis regulation happening in some countries, like some states in the US, like Canada is being debated in New Zealand at the moment, Uruguay. So it's quite quite a range of different countries as well. And I never thought I'd see that when I first started this research looking at um, cannabis. I never thought that would happen. And, and I think in the UK, there's so much else going on that these kind of issues are pushed way down the agenda. But having said that, we have seen discussions about medicinal use of cannabis, which is obviously a slightly different issue. But conversations are happening around that. Changes in legislation are happening, albeit at a very slow pace and not necessarily that accessible for many people. But maybe once um, the sort of big political events that are happening at the moment are... I mean, I don't know whether Brexit's ever going to be done, done, but maybe like <laughs> once once it's stopped being the the primary topic of conversation, things like this will will be more able to be discussed. And in terms of what political party in this country would do it, I I don't know the answer. But there are now um drug policy working groups um the green party have one the labor party have one the conservative party have one so there are politicians across the political spectrum talking about these issues so yeah who I knows mean, i don't know who knows exactly we can, we can hope for the best can't we um so earlier when I, I i i mentioned that um i potentially had put words in your mouth with the uh the school thing sorry about that what actually what i was referring to was the as i've listened to so many of your podcasts uh, in the last 24 hours that they've not all melded into one but, but <laughs> there's a little bit and i think where i was getting that from was from the episode the bonus episode with the uh the drugs group within bristol where that was the information that they were sort of promoting to people of that age not yourself sorry that was from from those guys um that was a really great episode no that's fine yeah they Bristol Drugs Project do amazing, amazing work in Bristol. And they, so they are quite often at clubs like Motion, giving that kind of harm reduction advice to people who are using substances at that time. So it's not so much they wouldn't necessarily give that advice in schools, but they would give it to people who are out clubbing, who are telling them that they're going to be using substances. So it's things like, don't be daft, start with a half, um, <laughs> crush, dab, wait. And and it's particularly important because MDMA is so potent at the moment. Organisations like The Loop, who have also worked in Bristol, who do drug testing, um, so, and by drug testing, I mean, they don't test you to see whether you've taken drugs. They test your drugs to tell you what they are and how strong they are. Um, and they they have been finding at festivals in the UK and city centre testing that MDMA is really, really potent at the moment. Cocaine is really, really potent at the moment. So a dose that you might have had five years ago, 10 years ago, that was an adequate dose for you if you take the same amount, you might be taking twice as much actual oh, MDMA. Wow. So, or even more than that potentially. So it's definitely advisable to to 
start small. MDMA is so popular. I mean, I'm quite a grizzled sort of festival veteran now, having worked sort of the last sort of, I don't know how many, five Glastonbury's or whatever, and had been a festival goer before that. First festival I ever went to was Isle of Wight Festival. I think that was back in 2014. And I came back going, wow, everyone was so nice. <laughs> it was so, and I think back to it now, it's such like an in-betweeners moment. Do you know what I mean? But it was like so naive. Um, God, everyone was just having such a great time. Everyone was so nice. To be fair, m- most people at festivals aren't on drugs. The, ma- the majority of people at festivals are not on drugs. <laughs> there are That doesn't mean there aren't lots of people on drugs at festivals, but it's probably less common than you might think. Right. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's funny once you sort of, once you get a little wise to this and you start to see the, you see the jaws swinging and the gurning and the look in the, the eyes. Size, the size of people's pupils. Yeah. yeah. And, and then you realise, <laughs> oh, I see what's going on here. But that's, that's an interesting world to be in actually for a, for a week. It's just it's almost, almost like seas of, of people who all look, Almost exactly the same. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, I miss festivals so much. <laughs> yeah, they're so receptive to music as well. I was really hoping to make it to Glastonbury this year for the first time ever. Oh, Even you... I lived in Bristol for 12 years. I can't believe You've I never, never went been. to Glastonbury. No. Oh, Glastonbury. I missed out. So when people say, oh, Glastonbury, there's something about it, you know, there's a magic in the air, blah, 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 and you think, oh, yeah, whatever. It's just because, you, you, you know, you're on holiday and you're... Uh, favourite bands are there and whatever. No, there is really something about the place besides the music because Glastonbury yeah. can be something other than a music festival. That's how big and diverse it is. But it really is, and I'm not I'm not into ley lines or any of that. I don't, I don't really kind of get that stuff. Like, I, I, I mean, if the hippies want to talk about it at the festival and I'm, I'm more than happy to uh, listen and, and, um, and get behind it and stuff there, but it's not really my kind of science. But... There is something truly magical about Glastonbury, and I think you you definitely need to go as soon as live music's back. If you can get a ticket, yeah. Well, what I was trying to do was get was get a book talk and come and talk about say why to drugs at Glastonbury. I think that would be brilliant. That would so, go down so well. If anyone's listening to this, <laughs> yeah, please book me. <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> um, I guess I got one one final question for you i guess and i don't want this to be you don't have to answer it we do have edit control so if you want it gone we can just get out, <laughs> get rid of it um uh, but um obviously you're um pregnant you're about to become uh, a mother do you know what do you know what you're having yet nope decided not to find out yeah no? oh a surprise okay so knowing what you know about drugs and the fact that you're you know you're going to have a child soon who's one day going to be in that that age group what advice what sort of approach are you going to be taking or do you maybe you don't even know you might be because we change don't we so you're going to be someone different in 15 20 years than you are now um but what what would you like to think your approach would be to that conversation with your child or children it's a really good question and it's something that um I have thought about a lot and there's some really good advice out there. So there's a researcher and a, he's a clinician called Owen Bowden-Jones and he's written a book called How to Talk to Your Children About Drugs. And it's some really, really good advice in there for parents. And I think the key, which is what you said there, is a conversation. Mm. You want to, you don't want to just have one, like you don't want to just have the drugs chat 
what what I what I want is to have an environment where my child can talk to me about these kind of things, feels that I would be open to listening in a non-judgmental way and being able to sort of trust me with with things that they want to talk about. And yeah, it's really difficult because you don't know what your child is going to be like and I think there does have to be that kind of nuance that different different children will need or want this conversation at very different ages. Some will be very sort of streetwise and will learn about these things at a very young age, whereas others will be will be much more kind of will take a much longer time to to come across this kind of conversation. Yeah. Um so I wouldn't want to rush a child into it. But equally I wouldn't want it to get to a point where they've done all of their finding out about it without me knowing about it or without without talking to them about it. I guess given the research that I do, the child is probably going to realise from quite a young age that I know about these kind of things. (laughs) So maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing. I don't really know. Um, Yeah. But but what my ideal would be to provide a safe environment where they feel like they can confide in me, that they're not going to get sort of told off or I'm not going to be kind of draconian about these things. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be supportive and helpful and that we can talk about these things and we can carry on conversations. It does. It's not a one-off thing that's really awkward and then we never speak of it again kind of thing, but it's an <laughs> ongoing dialogue that as they mature, um, so does our conversation. That's what I hope for. And of course, in 15 to 20 years, the drugs landscape will be different. Exactly, because the, yeah. the drugs might be four times as strong now. As you said, if they're carrying on this trajectory of being... Because I know people who have been in the rave scene in the 90s, and then they've come to festivals or whatever uh, uh, with us uh, in their... Uh, in their later, not later years, in their sort of late thirties, and uh, you know they've they've dabbled again for the first time in however long, and they're like, oh my god, they, you know, nothing like I remember. <laughs> yeah. So things are going to progress again, aren't they? And and I maybe I'm being ignorant, but something like spice or bath salts or something are these sort of new drugs, or do they just become part of the uh, the media um, machine? Uh, at a certain point. So where do you think drugs are going to go? What do you think is going to, the drug will be in 15 years? Maybe people will think cocaine is whack and it'll be something else. It's a great question because I think a lot will depend on, yeah, whether anything happens in terms of regulation and trying to change the way that we treat illicit drugs. What's the really worrying patterns is over the last couple of years, um, drug deaths have been going up which is odd because drug use hasn't really been going up. In, in, if anything, in some populations, it's been going down and yet more people are dying. So something is going badly wrong. Mm. So I really hope that well before we get to 15, 20 years time, we put the brakes on that and do something about these changing patterns in in these increasing deaths and increasing potencies and things like that. Um, I don't know what that will look like, Uh so yeah, and, and as you say, different drugs appear, particularly recently, things like synthetic cannabinoids like spice and synthetic cathinones like bath salts, methadrone, that kind of thing. These are sort of uh, synthetic uh, chemical approximations of other substances. And so there's also, um, that's been happening with psychedelics as well. So things like 2CB, you're seeing um, 
tweaking of molecules to create new substances that could carry on. Then maybe there'll be completely different substances discovered. Who knows? I think it's more likely that things will be created, synthesized rather than discovered in the natural world. Right. But who knows? Um, maybe uh, drugs will all be legalized. They'll become deeply uncool, and young people won't want anything to do with them. Uh, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> it could be anything. So yeah, I'm not. I'm not very good at predicting the future. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Giant Pod. That was Dr. Susie Gage. If you've been affected by anything that we've discussed within this podcast, uh, we will leave links for um, help and advice, additional information, etc. in the show note descriptions, as well as links to the Say Why to Drugs podcast, the Say Why to Drugs book, and any other relevant links. Please uh, like, subscribe, leave a review. It really does mean a lot. You can follow my antics on Instagram at at Andy underscore s1s this podcast was produced by the evervescent harry williams uh thanks so much for listening to uh this week's episode of the giant pod we will be back next week thanks <laughs>